Well, I have a pretty simple lesson for you this evening. Well, as I was reading through uh, Facebook, somebody had posted a link for a poll which had just come out on, uh, I believe it was this last Sunday. It was a poll that was actually posted on Newsweek, and it stated that 52% of Americans who were polled said that Jesus wasn't God in the flesh, but that He was a great teacher or a, a good moral teacher. Well, I began to think a little bit about that. It's pretty disturbing uh, that we find the majority of those people stating that, especially when 70-some percent of Americans at least claim to be, Amer- uh, claim to be Christians. Uh, but we have to start off by asking the question, if one doesn't believe that Jesus was God, they need to ask why it is that He would be willing to die for mankind. I can only see two logical answers to this question. One, he was, he was mentally unstable or he was mentally ill, and he literally believed that he was God in the flesh, and therefore, because he believed that, he was willing to die for his beliefs. The other option is, is he was actually the Messiah. He was, he was who he said he was. And I think for anybody who goes back and really studies the Bible, and I mean really studies the Bible, even, even if you're at this time an atheist or, or an agnostic, if you go back and you study the Bible, which was written by multiple men, in which we have no contradictions, I think you'll come to the belief that he certainly was who he said he was. And so we're going to certainly look at it as... From that viewpoint, I believe 100% that the Bible is inspired. I do believe 100% that it is accurate. And so what can we learn as we go back and we think about the very fact that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would be willing to die for all men? Well, if you're following along in your Bible, go to Romans chapter 5. We are going to look at verses 7 through 8. Primarily going to focus in on verse 8 and primarily on one phrase in verse 8. Now, I said this was going to be a very simple lesson. Simple doesn't mean we're not going to use a lot of Scripture. Uh, It is going to be a very simple lesson. At least, it should be. Uh, But we also want to go through it in great detail, and we want to address a number of things that people may have heard or may be considering as we look at the topic. Uh, Why is it that Jesus Christ would die for all men? Follow along with me, Romans chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Let me break this down for you. You're not going to find very many people who would be willing to die for uh, a righteous man. Most people aren't going to be willing to die for somebody, even if he was a good man. Paul goes on, Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. You'd probably find a few. might be a few men out there that would be willing to die for a good man. Verse 8, But God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All right, so we're talking about unrighteous people. And you've got, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, you've got Christ dying for those who are unrighteous. Now, he starts off by saying, you're not going to find many people that would be willing to die for a righteous man, but you might find a couple. Uh, But you're not going to really find hardly anybody, most likely, that's going to die for an unrighteous man, right? But there's one who would, and that one is Christ. Now... Let's start off with the very, the very fact that Christ did die for us. He died for all mankind. And as you let that 
ponder in for just a minute, especially for those who know what he went through. How does that affect you? I think for some people the answer is indifference. Definitely for those who are atheists who don't believe he was the Messiah. Possibly even for agnostics who aren't really sure. I mean, they hear the statement, Jesus died for us, but it probably doesn't, it doesn't greatly affect them. What about those maybe that do believe that he was the Messiah or do believe that he was a good person and that he was put to death unjustly? For some, I think it may, it may cause some sorrow as they look back at what he went through. What about those who looked at the very fact that he was who he said he was and that he did die on man's behalf? Does it actually give you thanksgiving? And when I say that, I don't mean it makes you happy that he died. What I mean is, is you're looking at the benefits of what man receives because of him. And because of that, you're very thankful that he would come and that he would die on the cross. Well, as we try to get a greater understanding about who Christ was and why He would die on the cross for man. What we're going to do is actually break the phrase down there in Romans 5 verse 8. Very short phrase, Christ died for us. Let's start off by talking about Christ for just a few minutes. As we've already noted, 52% of Americans say that He wasn't God in the flesh or He wasn't, he wasn't the Christ, uh, but He was just a great teacher. Well, let me start off by looking at a very basic point. Let's start off talking about the word Christ. The word Christ is not a name, right? I think a lot of people in general think that his name was Jesus and his last name was Christ. The, name, the word Christ in the Greek is Christos, and it simply means the anointed one. He was Jesus the Christ. He was Jesus the anointed one. Well, do we have anything that talks about an anointed one coming? Yes, we do. In the Old Testament speaks to that, and, and we can get great understanding about who this anointed one was, or would be, uh, and that would certainly help confirm that he wasn't crazy, that he was indeed who he says he was. And we'll look at that. Let's notice here, he was the anointed one, but as the anointed one who came from God, he was both human and divine, or he was human and deity. Okay, He's part of the Godhead. We notice that Jesus was born of a virgin birth, and he, is, he, he was God with us. Listen to Isaiah 7.14. We're going to look at the prophecy talking about the, the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. All right, this is going to be a miraculous sign. It's interesting, people today are always, are always asking to, for God to give them a sign. Well, here we actually have an account where we're told God is going to give us a miraculous sign. And notice what that sign is. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. I'm going to tell you what, that's, that is a miraculous sign. There is no way that anybody would be able to miss this, right? I'm a virgin, I've never been with a man in any way, and here I find myself pregnant with child. That is a miraculous sign and shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated is God with us. Let me give you a side note here. We've already pointed out that there's a prophecy talking about the fact that there's going to be a sign that the Messiah, the Anointed One, has come. That sign is, is that a woman who is a virgin, who's never been with a man at all in any way, is going to conceive and have a child. I have to say all this to say, as a side note, there are translations which do not render Isaiah 7.14. Uh, 
Behold, a virgin shall conceive. There are a number of translations uh, that render this as a young maiden. Uh, and if you go back and look into those, re those uh, different revisions, what you'll find is, is the supposed scholars who helped do the translations on those uh, did not believe in complete inspiration of the Scriptures. And they had a bunch of no a number of other issues. The virgin, the word here, virgin, is actually the word Alma. Okay, uh, many translate that as young maiden, but guys, a young maiden having a child is not a miraculous sign. When I married my wife, she was a young maiden, uh, and a short time later, while still a young maiden, she had a child. Uh, it, it wasn't miraculous, I can tell you that. Uh, it's not miraculous for a young woman to have a child, but it is miraculous for a virgin to conceive and have a child. And it's interesting, if you go back and you look at this word Alma in the LXX, or uh, go back and look at this in the Greek translation of the New Testament, uh, you will find those scriptures describing a young woman of childbearing years a number of times with that word Alma. And in the context, we know from a number of those that she was a virgin. As a matter of fact, we find that uh, I believe over a hundred different times. And so this fits the context of our prophecy perfect. So we see in Isaiah it prophesied that there is a virgin who's going to conceive and have a child. Well, we see the prophecy. Now let's go look at the fulfillment. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. I love this passage. It was the very first passage I had to memorize when I was going to school to become a minister. Follow along with me, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Let me pause for a minute. So wait a minute, why was he going to put her away? Well, we have an understanding from the Scriptures that the only reason for... Uh, getting out of a betrothal, the betrothal process or for a, uh, a marriage is the reason of fornication. Now, imagine if you were engaged to some, if you were engaged to a young female and all of a sudden you found out she was pregnant. How do you think that probably happened? If it wasn't you and you're betrothed to be married to her, you've not yet uh, been wed together, but you're, it's kind of like our engagement process, but had a, had a whole lot more... Um, permanency to it. If you were in that process, you weren't yet living together, you weren't yet man and wife, and all of a sudden they become pregnant, what would you think happened? Well, you would think that she had been unfaithful to you, and so you would put her away. And that's what we find Joseph doing here. And he didn't want to shame her, and so he was going to do it very privately. Now notice verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? She wasn't unfaithful to you. This is a miraculous sign. Hmm, it's interesting, guys. That follows along with what we learned from Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14, isn't it? He goes on, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. He is actually showing here the fulfillment of the prophecy. There is no doubt what he's referring to, right? 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, notice this, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. He knew her not. They didn't have relations until after the son was born. Now you've got uh, the Catholics teach that they never had relations. That's not what we find here. It says he didn't know her in that way until... And we also know that he had, uh, he had siblings. And so that, that Catholic teaching, just throw that out the window. Here we see the prophecy being fulfilled. Jesus was born of Mary, who was a virgin, before Mary and Joseph had come together. What's my point here? They hadn't become together as one flesh, as is described in our scriptures. You go back to Genesis 2.24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And we understand the meaning there of one flesh. It's talking about the intimate union between a husband and a wife, and that's the way that we get children, right? But Mary hadn't done that with Joseph. Mary was still a virgin, and so this sign that we see being discussed in Isaiah 7.14 comes to fulfillment. And actually, in our scriptures, it refers back to the passage. And so there's no doubt uh, that this sign that Isaiah had prophesied of, this virgin uh, having a child, clearly was fulfilled when Christ was born. There's no doubt about that. Now, what am I saying? Well, he was the Christ. He was the anointed one. He was literally God in the flesh. Now, I know that's hard to comprehend, that somebody could be 100% God and that somebody could be 100% human. And in our minds, that doesn't even work out mathematically, but it is true, and I'm going to show you it was true. He was 100% human. He was 100% God. Listen to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was 100% God. Okay? Now, listen to John 1.14. He's part of the Godhead, John 1.1. John 1.14 then makes, this, makes it clear that there's going to be a difference in, in His role as the Lagos or the Word. John 1.14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, and truth. Now, in your mind, I know a lot of people when they think about Christ and they go back to John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, they think about Christ uh, and Christ being with God. He's described as the Word or the Lagos in John 1 1. He doesn't actually become the Christ until he is born. Okay, there's a difference in role that is taking place here. So Jesus was fully God and he becomes man. And as a man, he humbles or he empties himself of, of the benefits or the perks that he would have of, of being God, but he doesn't empty himself of the ability or power of being God or his being divine or his deity. Listen to Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Talking about humbleness here 
who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You don't think for a second that Jesus could have stopped them from killing him? You think those nails literally held him up on that cross? Those nails didn't hold him up. Jesus could have easily have come down from that cross. We'll talk about why he did stay on that cross and why he died for, died for us, and that's actually what we're looking at here. Guys, when Jesus came to earth to live as a man, he literally claimed that he was God while he was here on earth. I want you to listen to John 8, 24. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Now let me go back to the poll that we started with. 52% of Americans do not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. Let me go back and read John 8, 24 again. For if ye believe not that I am he, who's he talking about? He's talking about being the prophesied one, being the Messiah. And he says, and if you don't believe that, you're going to die in your sins. Now let me go back to the poll. 52% of Americans do not believe that he was God in the flesh. And unless they change their mind and obey the gospel, you know what's going to happen? They're going to die in their sins. Now you may be saying, preacher, that's pretty harsh. That's, that's not my opinion on that. That's what the scriptures teach. If you don't believe that he was who he said he was, you're going to die in your sins. If you think that was harsh, let me make it just a little bit more harsh. That 52%, those aren't the only people who aren't, who aren't going to go to heaven. Those, people, those aren't the only people going to die in their sins. You've got people out worshiping vainly, uh, what, John 15, 9, uh, and they've not obeyed the gospel. Many of them, many of them who have obeyed the gospel aren't living faithfully, so they're not living according to the gospel. They're in the same situation as this 52%. And you may even be asking, and we had this discussion today at my secular workplace, how many people do you actually think are going to get to go to heaven? What percentage? I don't know that I can really guess on what percentage, but I'm going to tell you what, it's really, really, really high. Really high. There are a lot of people who even go to church every day on, or every week on Sunday and maybe even go to Bible study on Wednesday. They're not going to go to, they're not going to, go to heaven either. They're going to die in their sins. Uh, but certainly, I know for a fact... And if you don't believe that he is who he said he was, you're going to die in your sins. Listen to John 8, 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, many read that and it just goes right over their head. They have no idea what he's talking about. What's he talking about? I mean, they missed the point. What's he, what's he saying when he says, I am? Well, I'll tell you what, the Jews that were in the crowd, they knew what he was saying. Uh, so much so that many of them even accused him of blasphemy. What's he saying? Well, let me help you out. We're going to go on back to Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And to give you some context here, you've got Moses who's, who's getting ready to go before, uh, before the crowd here. And he says, what am I supposed to say when they ask who sent me? Follow along here. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Now, if you look that up in the Hebrew, it's actually the same word twice. 
I am, I am. It's rendered, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. I remember as a child asking my mom, who, uh, who is it that created God? And she said, well, nobody created Him, and I couldn't grasp my mind around it. But I can grasp it a whole lot better when I ask who God is, and He says, I am. What's He mean? I have been, I am, and I will be. I am. Many people struggle with that. And Jesus literally says, and I am. He's claiming to be God when he said before Abraham, I am. He's claiming to be part of the Godhead. Now, clearly you can understand why those Jews who didn't grasp this would accuse him of blasphemy. But Jesus claimed to be God while he was on earth. And he did it in such a way that anybody who knew their scriptures would have understood that he was God in the flesh. While he was here on earth, he had power of God on earth. Listen to Matthew 9, 6. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. Well, if you're familiar with that account, he originally had told him that he was forgiven of his sins. And uh, later he came back, and he makes it very clear here that he, uh, if it's easier for them to understand, that he would just tell them to, to get up, take thy bed, and go into thine house. Get up and walk. If it's easier to say that, I'll just say that. The point, though, of the passage is simply this. As the Son of God, here we find the phrase Son of Man, he had the power of God while he was here on earth to forgive sins. This caused an outrage amongst the Jews because the only person that could forgive sins was God. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. And you're looking at him right here in the flesh. He had the power of God while he was here on earth. Many struggle with this, and I'll point out one or, one or two groups. I won't go into great detail, but many struggle with the fact that the Lagos was eternal with God. I phrased it that way and not Christ because I don't want you to think of Christ prior to his being born as having the same role. He was at that time the Lagos or the Word, and he is or he was eternal with God. Listen to Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things. Let me, let me pause for just a minute. Does that mean some things? No, it doesn't mean some things. It means all things. Does it mean that it was some things after the, after the world was created? No. No, it means all things, right? It makes it very clear here that all things that were created, whether in heaven or that are on the earth, whether they're visible or invisible, he goes on that all of these things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things. If he's before all things, he's before the creation of the world. He's, he's before all things. He's eternal with God. This isn't the only verse that teaches this. But it says, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Anything that exists 
It was created through the power of Christ. Now, I've had discussions with people who didn't believe this. And for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they come to this passage here, Colossians 1, 16, 17. And they say, yeah, Christ was the creator of everything after God created him. But here's the problem. They're stuck when they do that. I'm going to go over to John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. From the very beginning of, of, of uh, anything we know about God, Christ was already coexisting with God. Right? That idea that God created Christ and then He made things, that doesn't line up with John 1, 1 through 3. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Notice that again. And without Him was not anything made that was made. The Jehovah's Witnesses I was speaking to said, Yeah, well, um, yeah, that's correct. He made everything, but God made Him. Now go back. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Christ was involved in everything that was made. So you can't say that God made Him because Christ was involved in everything that was made. Right? The Lagos is responsible for all of that. Why do I have to point all that out? Well, we've already shown that He was God in the flesh. But prior to him ever being human, he was fully part of the Godhead, right? He was not a God, as is translated by the New World Translation or the Jehovah's Witness Translation. There isn't any reputable Greek scholar anywhere who will support the translation of the New World Translation. And as a matter of fact, there are a number of reputable scholars who have had to contact the Jehovah's Witnesses and ask them to stop misrepresenting their works to make it appear that they believe or condone the translation there in John 1, 1 through 3. Right? And the word was God, not he was a God, a smaller God. He was God, literally. He was God here on earth in the flesh, and prior to his incarnation or being born, when he was described as the Lagos or the Word, he was fully God. He was part of the Godhead. So what am I saying? Well, he was God. He was the I Am, and he came as prophesied on man's behalf. All right, that's the first word out of our phrase. Right? We're going to look at the phrase, Christ died for us. That's Christ. And we have the prophecy of him coming, and we have the recording of the prophecy being fulfilled. We even have, by his own words, him claiming to be the Messiah. Now let's notice he died. I think many struggle with why it is that he had to die. Well, Christ died as a perfect sin offering for us. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ did not become sin for us by having our sins imputed unto Him while He was hanging on the cross, making Him the biggest, rankest sinner of all time. Guys, I hear that being taught all the time. That's just pure heresy. That's just pure error. Well, then what's He saying here when He says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us? Sometimes that word sin is actually referred to as a sin offering. As a matter of fact, over a hundred different times, I do know for a fact in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you find it rendered this way. You find the word sin, but it actually means the sin offering. 
And many, when they talk about Christ on the cross, and I said, I've, I've heard this taught so many times, they teach that as Christ was on the cross, He took all of our sins upon Him, and therefore He became the rankest sinner of all time, the most vile person that ever existed, and because of that, God couldn't look upon Him and turned His back on Him. And guys, again, that is just pure blasphemy. But you may be asking, well, how did that even get started? How, do, how did people come up with that? Well, let me read you the verse that causes most people to teach this incorrectly. Matthew 27, 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is quoting from Psalms 22, 1. And this is actually, if you read the entire psalm, this is a psalm of confidence, literally showing that God would never forsake us. And they have further problems because Jesus said that while He was hanging on the cross. Well, if you wanted to know what was going to happen prior to this event actually playing out, you would have gone back to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah prophesies about Jesus dying on the cross. That's where Jesus was when he actually refers back to Psalms 22.1. So notice what we find because the book of Isaiah prophesies about Jesus' death on the cross, but I want you to notice what else it says in Isaiah 53.11. He shall see of the travail of his soul. Well, how would that happen if he looked away from the rankest sinner that ever existed? Well, it couldn't happen, could it? God never took His eyes off Jesus while He was on that cross in sheer pain and agony. He shall see of the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. By His knowledge shall my righteous servant... What kind of servant was He? Righteous servant. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. How does that happen? He became our sin offering. You may still not have it figured out yet, but... He was going to be the sin offering for our sins. However, Jesus never sinned. Not even when He was hanging on that cross on our behalf. 1 Peter 2.22, this was written after Jesus was dead. It says, Who did no sin, it's referring back to Christ, Who did no sin, that's past tense. He never sinned. Even when He was hanging on the cross and His, supposedly as they teach, our sins went upon Him, Guys, that couldn't happen because it totally contradicts what the Bible teaches. Who did no sin, that means never, neither was guile found in his mouth. Christ never sinned. But, like the perfect Passover lamb, he became our sin offering, right? They had to have a lamb without blemish. We have a lamb without blemish, blemish our Lord and Savior. And that lamb without blemish was the sin offering. Our Lord, our lamb without blemish, our Lord and Savior was our sin offering. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover, our Passover what? Our Passover lamb, that's what he's talking about here, is sacrificed for us. Could you have a lamb with blemish? No, had to be without spot, without blemish. Our Lord and Savior was without spot. He was without blemish, and He was sacrificed for us. He was our sin offering. Now, I want you to consider for just a minute His agonizing and horrible death that He went through. 
I want you to consider for just a few minutes the personal agony. Listen to his prayer. Luke 22, 42-44, saying, Father, if Thou will be willing, remove this cup from me. Does it sound like he, he willingly wants to just go through this process and die? But he also knew there was a lot more at stake. It goes on, Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You listen to his prayer, and you listen to what it is he's going through, and you see the sheer agony of what it is that he was going through. And he was doing it for us. He fully understood why he was doing it, and he was doing it for us. Now you consider his manner of death. I'm going to actually go back to Isaiah 53. I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. We actually should have probably just read the whole chapter, but... Isaiah 53, 5-7, But He was wounded for our transgressions. Guys, that doesn't even cover the magnitude of what was done to Jesus. You think about how He was scourged. Uh, and although there's a number of theolog- theological problems with the movie The Passion of the Christ, you watch the scourging that takes place in that movie, and as bad as that is, and I remember having to look away. I remember not being able to look at it. It was so bad. As bad as it is portrayed in that movie, what he actually went through was probably a hundred times worse. It was horrible. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, our sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, hath, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's the sin offering, right? That's what it's talking about. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. What he went through was... It was just horrible. You see his agony in his prayer, and you see just how bad his suffering was. And then you think about you think about the shameful treatment that was given to him, even by some that that really loved him the most. He was betrayed by Judas for thirty pieces of silver. And then the one who really seemed so bold, Peter, even Peter denies him. Then he's mocked and he's abused by the soldiers that were there. Matter of fact, when you go back and look at it, he was even treated worse than Barnabas, who we know was a murderer. He was a criminal. Jesus was illegally tried and then he was crucified between two thieves. He literally literally died. And there were witnesses in the crowd that could attest to that, which is why when they couldn't find the body, there was such an uproar in the city, right? They literally saw him put to death. And then when they rolled back that stone, there's no body there. How do you explain that? Well, he was resurrected. That's another sermon I'd like to cover tonight, but I can't. So Christ died. But he didn't just die for no reason. He died for us. Now you have to ask, well, 
What exactly did His death do for us? Well, His death is the basis for our gospel and is the basis for the power to save. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, this is the word euangelion, the good news, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. What's the basis of this gospel? Unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for, for our sins. Right? He didn't take our sins upon Him. He died for our sins. He was the sin offering. According to the Scriptures. Guys, it, we just looked at Isaiah 53, and we see that it was according to the Scriptures He was going to die. He goes on, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You know, a lot of people got killed in the same manner as Jesus in the first century. But you know what didn't happen after those bodies were placed in tombs or um, placed in, in their sepulchers? Yeah, they didn't disappear from being resurrected. His did. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This goes back to John 8, 24. He says, if you don't believe that I am who I am He, you're going to die in your sins. And that's what we learn here in Romans 1, 16, right? It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Believes what? Well, the New Testament, and there's a lot included in that, right? You believe in the establishment of the one church, Matthew 16, 18, and 19. You believe that Jesus died for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28. You believe in the necessity of obeying the gospel, and we'll cover that here at the end of the lesson. But you need to believe the entirety of the New Testament. If you literally believe that Jesus was who He said He was, then you'll actually obey the writings or the recordings of our Lord's sayings by inspiration and those inspired writers that came after Him, that He, uh, some of which He appointed. So what did His death do for us? Well, it gave us the gospel. It explained to us the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And that word believe, again, is the word pistuo. It, it's got two parts to it. It means I understand it and I will do it. You've got lots of people out here in the world today saying, I believe, I believe, but they, they don't do what the Bible says. They don't meet the requirements of that word believe, pistuo. And so with that understanding that we have to obey, because that's part of the word there, believe, we have to obey the form of death. We're talking about the burial and the resurrection. Listen to Romans 6, 17 and 18. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Well, what was that form of doctrine? Well, the form of doctrine was our, our revealed New Testament. Okay, so what was it they obeyed out of that that revealed New Testament or that doctrine. Well, listen to Romans 6, 3, and 4, because this talks about obeying uh, or carrying out that, that simulation of the death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6, 3, and 4, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. All right, there's the death part. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. Why? 
that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the, fa the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We get the idea of the death, burial, and the resurrection. Guys, that's where we contact the blood. And so we realize that Christ, He died for us. The New Testament Scriptures describes that death, burial, and the resurrection. Uh, and we realize that we have to obey that New Testament teaching, which even talks about our burial and resurrection. But Christ's death also gave us a better covenant. Listen to Hebrews 8.6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a, new, of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. What's he talking about? I guess I would describe it this way. Why, why is the covenant we live under as Christians, our New Testament, why is it a better covenant than, than the law of Moses? Uh, the law of Moses was perfect for its time. I guess I could explain it this way. The problem with the law of Moses was never with the law. The problem with the law of Moses was man continued to sin even though they had a perfect law. So man continues to sin under a perfect law, and so you've got a man problem or really a sin problem, right? And every year they would come back and they would, have, they would, they would gather together to have their, their sins uh, um, basically rolled back on the Day of Atonement. But the problem was the Christ hadn't come, and so sins were never actually fully forgiven. They couldn't be forgiven until Jesus shed His blood. Uh, again, Matthew 26, 28. And so they lived under a covenant which they had a perfect law, system of laws, and yet man couldn't live under that perfectly. He continued to sin. Well, we live under a better covenant. Listen to Hebrews 8, 13. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on here. Really, these two verses, I, could have, I should have probably done a whole lesson. The Jews would have to continue to wait for the Day of Atonement to atone for their sins. And every year, they'd have to come back because their sins couldn't be forgiven. But we live under a new covenant, right? The, he made the first old, so the law of Moses is no longer in effect. Uh, Colossians 2.14, it was nailed to the cross. And we live under a better covenant because we don't have to wait for a day of atonement. If I sin right now, I can literally as a priest, and I am a priest when I become a, a Christian, all Christians are priests, I don't have to wait for another priest on the day of atonement to, to make prayer on my behalf. I can literally pray right then and there to be forgiven of what it is that I've done, and I can repent and turn away from it. Live under a totally different and better covenant. Now listen to Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, his death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Right? All people, whether you lived as a Jew or whether you live as a Christian, all people are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. No person has ever been and no person will ever be saved without the blood of Jesus Christ. For where a testament is, there must also be the necessity, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all 
while the testator liveth. Right? The New Testament didn't come into effect until after Christ died. That's why the old law was nailed to His cross. And as we learn from Hebrews chapter 9, He's this mediator of the New Testament, but that all people, whether you lived under the old law or whether you live under the law of Christ today, all people are saved through the blood of our sinless Savior. Why is that? Well, Christ's death gave us the remission of sins. Again, listen to Hebrews 9.22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Right? They had to shed the blood of animals uh, when they offered sacrifices for the Jews. But guys, an animal's blood, it's not the perfect sacrifice. Listen to Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin. Remember we said He's never sinned. Unto salvation. All right, so He had to shed His blood for the remission of sins. Hebrews 9, 22. Maybe I didn't put... I didn't put uh, Matthew 26, 28 in my notes. But we learn there that He did shed His blood for the remission of sins. And so, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And then we learn that Jesus shed His blood, or He was offered to bear the sins of many once, one time. The Catholics teach that every time you partake of the Eucharist, Jesus is sacrificed over and over and over again. Guys, that's not what our Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that He was once offered, once is all it took, to bear the sins of many. Oh yeah, I did put Matthew 26, 28 in my notes. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Why? For the remission of sins. There was no remission of sins until Jesus shed His blood. Christ's death also gave us the promise of eternal life. I'm going to go back to Hebrews 9.15. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That inheritance will be received by those who were faithful living under the patriarchal system. That inheritance will be received by those who were faithful living under the law of Moses when that law was in effect. And that inheritance will be received by those today who live as Christians according to the New Testament. We're talking about the New Testament church, right? Well, why does Christ's death give us the promise of eternal life? Today, for us who are New Testament Christians, it's because His death purchased the church. Literally, His blood. It purchased the church. Listen to Acts 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers, talking to the elders of the church, to feed the church of God, which He hath purchased with His own blood. Jesus purchased the church with His blood. Which church is it? Is it all the rest of these churches that are here in the community because there's so many? No, it's His church. Well, which one is that? It's the one that He promised He would build, Matthew 16, 18, and 19. It's the church with one faith, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. That is the one church. That is the only church that was purchased with His blood. 
the rest of the churches that you find around here who didn't exist at the time of the first century in our Bible, I'll just start naming them off, and it's not my goal to offend you, but I want you to get it logically. All these churches were started by men. The Baptist Church, do a study. You'll find out when it came into existence. It was started by a man. didn't exist in the first century. The Pentecostal Church, you find that really coming out of the revivals there on Azusa Street, I think about 1901. It was started by men, right? It teaches the doctrines of men, just like the Baptist Church. Neither one of those is his church. He didn't shed his blood for those churches. The Catholic Church, which is an apostate uh, veer-off from the original church in the first century, really began, began to be called the Catholic Church or the Universal Church with a pope starting in the 600s. So people will vary over the dates and really had complete power until, oh, well, you could go so far as into the 1600s. Guys, that was, that was started by men. Go back and read a catechism. You don't find any of that, much, much of that stuff taught in the Bible. Those were things that were taught by men. So you've got the Baptist church is not the church he shed blood for, and the Catholic church is not the church he shed blood for, and the Pentecostal church isn't, and neither is the Nazarene church, neither is the Methodist church, neither are any of these churches. If it didn't exist in your Bible, it's not the church he shed his blood for. And you don't find different denominations in the Bible. There's only one church. Yeah, it may have been called the Church of God, which it was because Christ established it and He was God in the flesh. Or it could be called the Church of Christ. But they each taught the same thing. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, uh, Jude 1, 3. The faith had been given. That's what all the congregations were teaching. Okay, And that church was purchased with His blood. So here's the question then. He purchased the church with His blood, and we've talked about this inheritance already, but how do we then receive the benefits of His death? Well, as we've already noted, He did shed His blood for the remission of sins. He did His part. But what does man have to do? Well, we have to be baptized into His death. Romans 6, 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ we're baptized into His death. Write down uh, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. We're baptized into Christ. Every conversion account, you'll find that they were baptized into Christ. If you're only baptized into Christ, can you faith only into Christ? No, you don't find that in the Bible. Can you sprinkle or pour? No, you don't find that in the Bible. That's not how you get into Christ. Is it baptism by fire? No, you don't find that anywhere. People think that's uh, charismatic Holy Spirit, a really good thing. It's not. You don't want to be baptized in fire. Uh, you've got to be baptized into His death. And there was only one baptism. Again, go read Ephesians chapter 4. And then we have to walk in the light. Now, when I say that we have to be baptized into Christ, I don't simply mean you can walk in the door here and say, Hey, Sean, I, need to, I, I think I need to be baptized, and I believe that as long as you get wet, you're going to become a Christian. Guys, we don't find that in the Bible. There's actually a plan that we see in every conversion account. And as you take the conversion accounts and you look at what people did, and you look at the commands given to us, we understand there's more than just being immersed in water. However, that is the culminating act in every account. And that is how you get into Christ. It's the final act that someone does as obeying the gospel. After you've obeyed the gospel, then you have to walk in the light. Listen to 1 John 1, 5-7. This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we're talking about sinning, we lie and do not the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. So we learn that you can only have fellowship with God when you are righteous, when you're walking in the light. You can't go out and fornicate and call yourself a Christian and think you're walking in the light. You can't go out and be a thief uh, and claim to be a Christian and say you're walking in the light. You can't go out and riot and burn stuff down. You can't, you can't break any of these laws that we find within our New Testament and then claim to be a Christian and think that you are righteous. You are not. We have to walk in the light. That is talking about walking according to the word which was given by the light. Right? And God is light. God gave us our inspired word. I really wish I could have covered a whole lot more today as we talk about Christ and why He died for us. But let me end with Romans 5, 6, and 8, even though we've already read it. And, and as I read this, I want you to think about, if you're not a Christian yet, I want you to think about the state of sin that you're currently in. Honestly, think about the things that you currently are doing, the things that clearly are contradictory to the Bible. And if you are watching this and you are a Christian, again, please do some self-reflection. Look at those things you don't tell any of your Christian friends that you do, the things that you know are wrong, the things that you struggle with. And let's look at Romans 5, 6, and 8 again. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. And guys, He even died for that 52% who reject Him as God. But I hate to tell you this, for those that do not believe that He is who He said He was, and for those who are not faithful, you're going to be judged by the Word of God, John 12 48. And if you're not found in alignment with the Scriptures, you're not going to go to heaven. But I do want you to remember this. He did die for you. So ask yourself, what are you doing for Him? As I draw this to a close, my concern is that anybody who is watching this online would know how to become a Christian. Again, please don't just call people and ask how to become a Christian. Don't just get on the internet and read somebody who's saying, well, all you need to do is is say the sinner's prayer. What you need to do is study your Bible. Your salvation is much too important to trust to anybody, even to me. And so that's why I'm going to give you Bible verses, and I encourage you to please go back and look them up. You will find in every conversion account in our Bible, you will find that there were people going around and they were teaching the Word of God. Romans 10, 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Or actually the word there is Christos. And so you had the apostles, you had evangelists, or we might call them ministers, going around and they were simply teaching the Word of God. The Word of God included a number of things. We've already covered many of them, but that there was one church. Jesus said He would establish His, His church, singular, Matthew 16, 18, and 19. As I already noted, that church only had one doctrine. They were in unity with one another. All congregations were in unity with one another, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And they were in alignment with the faith that had once been given there in that first century, Jude 1.3. That's what these evangelists were going around and teaching. Part of that teaching was that all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and there will be a consequence. 
death. Romans 6.23. And so you need to have an understanding about just how, how damaging sin is in your life. But you also need to understand that Jesus has commanded all men everywhere to repent. Luke 13.3 and 5. And that's the same thing that Paul taught at Mars Hill, Acts 17.30. And so you need to have heard the Word. We've already covered that you need to believe, Hebrews 11.6. We've covered that you need to repent of your sins. You also need to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then you need to be immersed in water for the remission of sins. That's the final culminating act that puts you into Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, and Romans 6, 3 and 4. And after you have obeyed the gospel, you are then added to the church by the Lord Himself, Romans 6, verses, or sorry, Acts chapter 2, verses, verse 47. Now, I know that that's not what we find in the religious world around us. The majority of people would tell you to come to the building. Uh, they would say you simply need to believe and you sign a, a register and, and, and you become a member. But the Lord adds you to His church when you've simply obeyed what He has told you to do. Again, guys, please don't take my word on it. Please look up every verse. I could give you a lot more verses, and if you need more information, we'd love for you to call us here. Uh, we could definitely spend more time spending spend time talking about the Scriptures and the necessity for Christians. And if need be, we'd even help you find a congregation, a faithful congregation in your local area. Once you've obeyed the gospel, you then need to be faithful. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. And so as I draw this to a close, I hope you've gotten a better understanding about why it is that Christ died for us. And I hope that if you're not a Christian, it's encouraged you to become one. Again, if there's a way we can help you in any way, you can contact us here at the church.